Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Jeremy So. Dr. Jeremy So is a personal and supervising analyst at the Lacanian School of Psychoanalysis, with an extensive professional background in community mental health services in San Francisco. He's also trained as an anthropologist. He earned his PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, where he was a National Science Foundation fellow studying trauma, political violence, collective memory, and alter concepts of mind, technology, and environment in indigenous worlds. Alongside his clinical practice, he writes researches, and lectures in the fields of psychoanalysis, anthropology, and philosophy on topics related to contemporary technological experience, digital and symbolic networks, and comparative concepts of the psyche. Currently, he's working on a project entitled Psychic and Technological Apparatuses, which explores the relations between digital and symbolic life in the present context of computerized society, with particular attention to its effects on psychic life and free association. Today, Dr. So will discuss dreams and creativity from a psychoanalytic perspective and how we surmise these are impacted by the use of consumer technology. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's a delight to have you here. So first, would you mind outlining for our listeners, some of whom aren't psychoanalysts, what is meant by creativity and dreams for the purposes of our discussion today and why these are important from a psychoanalytic perspective? Basically, I'm asking, why should we care if we're creative or if we're dreaming or not? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I guess I'll say first that creativity is one of these funny little things that, like love or happiness, it's far easier to say what is not than what it is. Mm. But I suppose as a general statement, I tend to think of creativity as minimally a sort of cultivated capacity to sense, to perceive, to draw on the wealth of relations that we perceive things as having to us and perceive things as having to one another in a way that I'd say reinvents and respecifies them or puts them into variation or mobilizes them towards new ends. So it's, I would say, an inventive and imaginative relation to the given or an inherited symbolic system, an inherited symbolic archive, let's say, that's given a new life through this transformation that comes from the act of creativity. So in this sense, in my own work, thought, writing, I consider creativity to be an intrinsic part of what I like to call individuation, which is a concept I take from a forgotten philosopher, who I believe is also autistic, to indicate that mine is not the sort of substance that is interior or exterior, right? But rather mm -hmm. a process that integrates and differentiates the milieu it finds itself in. Mm -hmm. Now, as to the relation between creativity and dreams, I'm supposing here that we are bringing them together because we 
have an assumption that dreams are where we seem to see a flow of spontaneous creativity stemming from the imagination. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, in my own sort of very uh, structuralist mind, I seem to be thinking about the relation between creativity and dreams as maybe being able to be linked together in a similar manner as they each do to their conditions. You know, creativity, say, requires the effort of work, but it's itself effortless in the sense that, as we know, say, when we write or when we try and, you know, create an art project, right, it's what happens rather than something you can make happen. Mm-hmm. And so similarly for the dream, of course, it requires a state of sleep, but it's itself something that happens rather than something we can decide to make happen, obviously. Which is to say, creativity and dreams seem to be linked in my mind to the fact that they're both relatively autonomous processes. They come about through conditions that they may be dependent on, but which they are not themselves. Just as there can be work without creativity, there can be sleep without dreams, but there's really sort of no creativity without work and no dreams without sleep. Unless, of course, you're you know, hallucinating, but that's a different <laughs> story altogether. You know, likewise, like if we try and put dreams and creativity together, dreaming is necessarily creative. I would certainly agree with that. But being creative doesn't necessarily mean you're dreaming. As to your question about dreams in particular, I'd say we care about dreams because they are in a fundamental way, a kind of self-regard, special kind of attention, if you like, that we give to our most sort of intimate experiences that we're normally hardly aware of because we apprehend these things through our consciousness. But in psychoanalysis, of course, we understand this sort of attention to well up from our unconscious, which I'll just gloss here for people and audience that might not know what I'm talking about. It's just thoughts, wishes, memories that are repressed. And fears as well, right? Fears, thoughts, fears, wishes. Certainly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. The kind that strikes you at night. And so in this way, what's important about the dream is that it can have the power to show us how we may actually experience something, or even that we experienced something we didn't know we did, or unaware we actually knew. So they grant us access to our experiences in all of the possible ways we could have had them. So to be a bit glib, I think <laughs> I'd say we care about dreams because dreams are in fact about caring. They mm. are these these expressions of unconscious processes that normally lie asleep in us, right? They normally operate silently asleep within us. And well, they wake up when we dream. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that you brought up care. And at the beginning, when you were talking, you were talking about creativity being a relationship between a new use, a new relationship between two things, either two objects or people mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. what have you. And I just thought that this is about some sort of relationship and caring. It is quite intimate. And sometimes it's very satisfying. I mean, some dreams are very satisfying or very stirring. Indeed, indeed. And the creative process is also very satisfying somehow, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. stirring. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's an emotional dimension to this, I guess is what I'm saying, and a relational dimension. Absolutely, yes. It's in the dimension of aesthetics, of course, that you know perhaps we'll get more into later. Certainly, certainly. You also got me thinking, you know, as we started to, you know, I sort of had the idea of linking these two ideas together, creativity and dreams. You picked up on that and we're going to go in that direction. I'm thinking a little bit about all of these in-between states like hypnagogic states. You mentioned hallucinations. I'm wondering about 
waking dreams that some analysts have talked about. Beyond has talked a lot about dreaming. There's social dreaming. There's active imagination. Can you say something about these in-between states where people are actually kind of not awake, kind of not asleep, but also have access to some of this unconscious material and it feels very creative? Hmm. Wow. That kind of stumps me a little bit. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> me too. I think those are really interesting states of mind, but I, I don't know a lot about them. Right, right, right. I think this in-between states really actually uh, reveal or unconceal, I think would be the better word, the way in which what appears to us to be an individual, in fact, in the very body of being an individual is expressive of what I would call, again, borrowing from this philosopher Simon Don, trans-individual states, trans-individual values, which means that, as we know very well as psychoanalysts, that there is in a person more than the person himself or herself or they self, in that we all come from a history and we are born into a very particular moment, and that's necessarily so, but with an inheritance of a past that we never lived. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And so all our values are really themselves individuated states of something quite trans-individual. But to put it in the word, we contain a collective in us. We are collectives. It's not as if there's a collective that's you know located on one level, and then we have individuals understood as atoms that make up an aggregate that then becomes the collective. This is very, very bad sociology. <laughs> and I think people who hallucinate, people who are in these, you know, what do you call in-between states, are uh, really sort of because they have been emptied of what we would normally or conventionally see as substance, they become shells that can express all these really interesting relations that just so to speak, pull out of them, right? Just mm -hmm. emanate from them, like we see with, you know, the imaginations of a psychotic who is, say, paranoid. Highly interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's what comes to my mind. I don't know if that's a yeah, yeah. adequate answer for you. <laughs> well, I realize I realize that I'm speaking to a, you know, a, a doctor of anthropology as well as a psychoanalyst, and so there's probably whole bodies of literature that underpin that question in many ways, and I think. I think we could spend a lifetime really unpacking, you know, what is the social, what is, mm -hmm. is cultural, what is because of the symbolic realm of language. And so, like, there's a lot packed into that question. Yes. You know, I should say in my anthropological fieldwork, I have had experiences of, say, a mother pointing to her child and she uses the local word. She's like, yeah, please meet the collective oh interesting and it's an everyday thing right it's not anything that people this is not highfalutin theory it's, uh -huh, it's, just how, uh -huh. it's how people talk because the ontology is different interesting interesting that's fascinating so uh, getting back to creativity and dreaming what would you say governs our ability to be creative so you know there are some people who are more creative others who claim they are less creative some people say they dream a lot and they have very vivid dreams and they report them in psychoanalysis. Others claim that they don't for some periods of time. What governs our ability to be creative and to dream? Mm. Well, I think that the imagination is central. And the moment we start talking about the imagination, we are immediately talking, in my mind, about 
a certain act of freedom, but a certain act of freedom that comes from an experience or a place of something that cannot quite be known as such, or something we cannot make present to ourselves, or something that simply cannot be present, impossible, unknowable, not just that we don't know it, but it's unknowable. Mm -hmm. This is why, of course, in the, let's call it the Occidental tradition, in the thought of antiquity in Greece, right, this, you know, a lot of the way imagination is referred to, say, in Plato's text, it's fantasia, which is fantasy, right, which originally meant coming into presence, because imagination is the ability, and this is where its freedom is located, to make present something that is not yet present to me or that cannot be present. So I think having, if you like, the gap in knowledge, that's one of the ways in which I think there's a sort of governing rule to what can propel creativity. If we already know it all, in other words, it is not possible to create. There has to be some kind of natural, structural, intrinsic misalignment or a whole that actually then gives rise to the welling up of particular ways of altering the system. It's almost like there has to be like a womb-like emptiness or something into which something could be born. Aha, uh-huh. very nice image. I like that. I like <laughs> that very much. Mm-hmm. Yes, cavities, empty spaces, vacuoles. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. One interesting thing about Freud's theory of dreams is that he precisely tells us something like this. Mm. So a lot has been said about the dream. Obviously, it's kind of at the root of how... The discipline of psychoanalysis was created through the uh, interpretation of dreams. But there's something that Freud told us in the text that still, I mean, people know this, but, you know, I think it's still uh, quite infrequently mentioned, which is that, right, the creativity that we see pouring out in terms of the imagination, the creative imagination, these sort of strange symbolic conglomerations, surrealistic kind of images, that appear in our dreams, he teaches us that we have a capacity to imagine all kinds of novel relations and associations of this kind, because it's deeply linked to what cannot be present, the sort of unknown that animates the entire dreamscape that are linked very much to our desires, which are primarily unconscious. So the capacity to create in the dream actually has a link to the unknowable, which is ultimately what generates it. I'd say the dream itself is preeminently the experience of the unknowable. So yes, I mean, we seem to come back to the same point here that the cavity, the empty space, the empty slot allows for things to move. It's a positive feature. What's empty is not negative, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking about all the times when, you know, some people have the experience of having dreams that are prophetic or dreams that are helpful to them. They guide them or they analyze it in in analysis and come to some understanding of themselves. So they can be really instructive or helpful or facilitative of further Mm. exploration of what is unknowable, but is striving to be known. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't want to make the mistake of saying all dreams are prophetic and all dreams are instructive and teach us something. You know, some of them can be known as, you know, just day residue or random associations that are not useful or wishes or fears that 
maybe are just discharges of energy or drive. I'm curious what you think about that. Like, are some dreams different than other dreams? Are some dreams more creative or less creative, more instructive, more insightful? I wouldn't peg it to the degree of creativity, but to <laughs> something you had said earlier regarding we don't want to make the mistake of regarding dreams as just instructions, because then that would presume that they are in some sense transparent. If there's anything a dream is not, it is that, mm-hmm. right? So canonically, of course, or you know, classically, psychoanalysts tend to work from the idea that every dream is a wish fulfillment. But as Freud shows immediately in the interpretation of dreams, this is something that's always rooted in certain conflict, certain tension in the dreamer. So when we talk about a wish fulfillment, this is a wish fulfillment that is anything but straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's not as if, say, you you wish to eat strawberries, but for, for some reason you can't or you are prevented from doing so. And then at night, you are just let free to dream of this feast in which you devour like loads of strawberries. There's mm-hmm. not that sort of direct line into the dream like that. It's in fact something far more paradoxical. Freud says, simply put, that our wishes and our desires are, well, precisely because they contain something objectionable to us mm-hmm. or that we know would be objectionable from you know a point of view other than the wish. For example, like you know, wishing a family member dead or feeling sexually attracted to your own mother, or maybe your best friend's husband, or maybe mm-hmm. wishing to be punished for deeds that are not your own, things of this sort, just classic examples. But the main point here is that Freud has showed us very wonderfully in the interpretation of dreams that the great symbolic productions that we see in our dreams are fundamentally designed by us as inventive ways of getting around the conflicts that inform mm-hmm. our wishes, mm-hmm. right? And so what we're in fact doing when we dream is not to express everything transparently, like it's blocked in waking life and then in the dream, I just express it all, I'm completely free. No, in fact, what is most transparent is how we hide. Uh-huh. We hide our own desires from ourselves and we hide them, more importantly, in the very expression of them. Mm-hmm. Right. So, of course, this is where we see the dream employ these series of tricks, if you like, that Freud calls uh, dream distortions, right? Mm-hmm. Which express what we, in fact, want, but maybe don't want to see quite so directly. Maybe, you know, a bit like the way wit is employed in a, in a joke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Comedy stand-up, it allows for something that can't be confronted head-on to be conveyed nonetheless. And and this is in part why the dream shows up in the form of uh, strange ciphers and puzzle pictures and absurd conglomerations. On the, you know, what he would call the manifest level, like what we see appear in our dreams through this two mechanisms of condensation and displacement, they are, which I can go into if you want, but they are ways of concealing from ourselves what we really want. But we need to express what is unconscious in us Otherwise, put simply, it would be unbearable. But in the expression of it, we conceal it. So again, what's most transparent in a dream is the mode of hiding, how we hide, which can be very useful to get at the kind of associations that the dream opens up, because it doesn't end with the dream. The dream is an instance of a larger set of associations that come with the patient, understood as a trans-individual entity. 
<laughs> so you're you're using this word association, and I want to just sort of broaden. I mean, psychoanalysts talk about free association, and we talk about associating to things very frequently. And this is a, a highly prized process for us because it usually is very generative and allows us to kind of map the contours of defenses and map the contours of unconscious processes sometimes through association. Sometimes we have more or fewer or more generative or less generative groups of associations. And I'm going to call that a creative process, I would say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Would you say that perhaps there's something about our ability to relate to things or many things together that is associative, that is really part of the psychoanalytic endeavor, and that is healthy and good for all of us in order to make meaning or in order to understand these ciphers in our dreams, these puzzles in, in reality, in the world. Maybe say a little bit about association. Yeah. Nicole, can you say a bit simpler what you were trying to ask here? What I'm trying to ask is, you know, is association perhaps the mechanism, people who are, when it's easy to associate, is that perhaps the root of creativity? Is creativity merely association? Ah, uh-huh. The ability to allow, you know, allow oneself to freely think and generate and remain open to new ideas in response to something. Right, right. I think this brings us to the question of attunement. It's a question of receivership, if you like, but it's a bit of a misnomer because it's not only a, a mode of receiving, but a certain circuit between production and reception that is embodied in the term attunement or a certain kind of attention again. And in this case, if we are attuning or attending to our own experiences, then the question would be what the quality of this attunement or attention is mm -hmm. that can actually spark creativity because it requires a motor. It's something to which a motor has to be provided because mm -hmm. otherwise you just get a collection of intersections that would be static. Yeah, yeah. But the associations are already wanting to grab onto one another, such as when we hear in the word, say, attention. We can also hear a tension, which happens with, in fact, a lot of my Gen Z patients. I play around a lot with attention as, like, I want attention as attention of wanting attention right mm -hmm. yes. and so when you play around again here in this particular case i'm opening up a gap i'm opening up a space a cavity such that other things can maybe move in its place and the things that were in their former places perhaps have to substitute positions remove themselves and replace themselves somewhere else which then allows for more things to come into the fold yeah i hope that answers the question yeah, wonderful. This is a perfect segue into addressing what it means to be dreaming or creative inside of or against the backdrop of consumer technology use or abuse or addiction or whatever it is that we're all experiencing. What are you noticing or theorizing might be going on with tech's impact on our ability to be creative or to dream, particularly if it requires a gap or a cavity or a space? So I've begun to think about these questions on the register of attention, in no small part because my patients 
well, when you ask me these questions, I think immediately of my Gen Z patients. So these these patients have come to me with some version of I'm distracted. I have you know compulsive use of technology. I'm exhausted. I'm inhibited. I panic. I have anxieties around being seen. And so they are very much caught up in appearances, caught up in the structure of media attentionality in which they're completely immersed. And this is itself a very interesting aspect of my work with them over the last few years. Because what has come to the fore, which is why I'm interested in attention, is not only because they say, I want attention or... I can't stop thinking about whatever it is that I was engaging with on Twitter. So I have this patient who at one point had to engage in these uh, full 20-minute invectives about uh, all the people who had trolled her and uh, mm-hmm. you know insulted her. And she goes into states where she feels so crushed and demeaned and diminished by this that she needs to almost breathe again through emptying this out at the start of sessions. But what has come out in these cases is that there's been this background of a systematic inattention on the part of parents. This is true of nearly all of them. In fact, I would say all of them, where they come from backgrounds of parents that were themselves looking at phones in place of being attentive to them. So these are individuals who come into the clinic with a very different kind of transference, the kind of transference that Kohat had raised as mirror transference, mm-hmm. right? which is, to put it in the simplest way possible, is where, in a very immediate way, I look to you in order to tell me what I am or that I am. I use you as a mirror. And so it's a very different kind of transference. This is not the normal kind of transference, but it's a transference nonetheless that pulls you into a particular kind of position. These are at the root of what has been called the narcissistic personality disorder, of course, in DSM terms, but I just understand them as narcissistic traits. So there's the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there is a way in which the systematic inattention in their lives have created a situation for them that's so unbearable, where they feel so neglected, they feel so deprived of attention, that this is precisely what goes into the drive to be recognized, to be noticed, to be observed within the media sphere, where on the level of a mediatized attention, they get so immersed and trapped that it produces blowbacks in the form of various forms of right distraction, compulsion, exhaustion, inhibition, and panics and anxieties around being seen. As you're talking, I'm just thinking about how the cell phone or whatever apps or social media or whatever isn't providing a mirror, it's providing amplification or distortion in some kind of way, no? That's right, that's right, absolutely. So there's kind of like a transference to the object itself and what one gets back is all the trolls or like, you know, whatever else. I'm not on social media, so I don't know, but one gets back all this kind of negativity and then it causes more seeking, you know, like more more desire for, for a mirror that will be loving and responsive and accurate and not distorted. And then you get back more of the amplification and distortion. 
Right, right, right. Yeah. When I brought up the neurotransference, I was talking more about the clinical relationship. Uh-huh. You are absolutely right that the phone is not a mirror. It's more of a door. It's more of a portal into these collective vectors of attention that are very much guided by commercial interests. And so what I'm trying to point to essentially is that what informs the seeking of some of these Gen Z patients, but is by no means limited to them, but you know they're in a sense paradigmatic, being digital natives right, mm-hmm. of this world that we inhabit now, they are informed by a life history of a systematic inattention that leads them to become immersed in these echo chambers of the media sphere that effectively, because they are undergirded and directed, vectorized by, you know, a few commercial interests, big tech, that supply them continually with answers that never satisfy them, right? And that have no sort of real relationship to anything in their lives that touches on why they're seeking these things in the first place. So to your question, I would say that to the extent that there are these collective vectors of attention that sort of direct you on a collective level in the form of showing you what's trending, what has gone viral, what are people looking at, there's a way in which it constrains the singularity of the search. It constrains the singularity of the desire inherent in that. And that's maybe constrains creativity, no? If it constrains the singularity, then we're all in the echo chamber. There's nothing new coming in or some newness is being stomped out or not is, is not available. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I think you essentially get a seeking of answers for questions they don't know they have mm-hmm. and they don't know how to ask if they know they have them. And the way in which these collective vectors collect attention only to particular things has a way of creating a kind of echo chamber where then people simply are recycling and repeating memes. And so you, instead of getting to a place where you can actually see the formation of value or how people get to what they value, you get the immediate supplication of answers that drowns out even the possibility of the questions, right? Mm -hmm. The way that the media, and this is linked to standardization, the way the media sphere depends on a kind of immediation of meaning. Mm -hmm. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about Google and I'm thinking about how often it is that I have a question that, you know, I I was born in a time when there was no internet, and you would used to have to sit with that question. Maybe you would ask an expert or you would ponder or talk with your friends and family and come to some sort of understanding. Maybe you would see a book in the library. But now you ask Google and Google already, because of the search terms, already formulates your question and links it to certain tag words and exactly so on. And then it's crowdsourced in Quora and Reddit and wherever else. And so you do have this notion of whoever's been speaking about something the most will rise to the top, but that doesn't mean that that's the right answer. And we see that in ChatGPT4 too, mm-hmm. where sometimes it will see the numerous citations and think that therefore that means that it's right. But that's, that's not the sifting process of, is that the right creative answer? Or is that the right thing? Or we still need humans to be able to think about those things. And yet we need that gap in which to consider 
what about the question? Is this the right question? Is this a creative question? Is this an open enough question? How do I feel about this question? I don't know. There's something about that. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you you have put it very well. You know, I'll just say, you know, succinctly that what I was trying to say was precisely that these patients get caught up in, you know, a certain kind of structural logic of prioritization based on where attention is collected. And it shows up in the form of, you know, Google page rank mm-hmm. or, you know, getting these automated prompts for uh, your question, even before you finish typing them. And so the immediacy of meaning, this problem of knowing, they think that it's a question of knowing where to find the right answer. They are so they are so conditioned to think this. Actually, let me correct myself. We are so conditioned yes. to think this. I don't <laughs> yes, want to. I I certainly don't want to point my finger at the young. I think this is a ridiculous way of going about this problem. But you know, there's a difference between knowing where to find the right answers and knowing what it takes to answer something. Mm-hmm. But I do worry about the the young people. Do have a special problem where they are more sensitive to being accepted by the group. And so this business of crowdsourcing or TikTok or whatever yes. is very seductive for them in particular. And maybe for many adults too, of course, I, I don't want to say that I'm outside of that either, but there's something about that time period that is really precious and really problematic for them relative to tech, I think, in a unique way, no? Which time period? Being a teenager. I mean, I think being a teenager, it makes it almost impossible for them to go against the group and to yes, say, I'm not yes, going to care right. about this meme or this thing, because if they opt out, then they are shunned. And that's like horrifying developmentally. That's right. That's right. And and this is why I was bringing up the question of narcissism here. Yes. I mean, you know, Christopher Lash had already started to point these things out in his great book, The Culture of Narcissism. And that was in the late 1970s, where he was talking about the invasion of the family by mass media apparatuses that were already at the time coming to perform the role of what he called, if I remember correctly, the function of a social tutelage mm-hmm. that today has only intensified, where you have, you know, what some of my friends jokingly call UTT, University of TikTok, right? Yes. People <laughs> go on TikTok to learn how to love, uh, how to make friends how to be a bulimic which actually i have one case of that sort but you know i've also seen people use it in the positive what about how to you know make i don't know sugar-free muffins because they're allergic to sugar or how to do a workout in 15 minutes that's going to be helpful or how to you know make a dog collar out of nothing or whatever the thing is i've seen some kind of cool answers to interesting problems that are shared that seem useful Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't use TikTok, but I have seen people use it to creative ends. Absolutely. Yes. None of this is to detract from the fact that the distribution of information that the web has been able to create in this totally unprecedented way isn't great. It is great. But, you know, I think that the problem becomes that people think that it can then be a substitute, say, for the classroom, where you have a very different kind of attentional regime to learning because it involves a completely different kind of attentionality that is reciprocally attuned to other people, right, in the way that a research team 
which exists even in tech companies, right? Mm-hmm. When they work in a team, you're able to create in the form of an ensemble particular modes of learning that do not depend and cannot depend on a form of attention that is the attention grabbing kind, the attention capturing kind that we see with such speed and, you know, in a sense, ferocity in in, uh, social media. You know, I have this, as you're talking, I'm having this idea of educators really have a massive responsibility at this juncture to perhaps, like I have a fantasy that all of the courses that we took when we were in middle school and high school, you know, geography and history and civics and science and whatever, could be condensed into one single course called media literacy, which is essentially the ability to think and the ability to discern what is truth, what is not, you know, like a a basic philosophy course, learning to use all these tools and writing and thinking all at once, because you almost need, you need some help with discerning what can I use TikTok for when, how, what can I use the internet for when and how, what can I use chat GPT and all the subsequent AI things that are going to come out. Somebody needs to devise a new curriculum because it doesn't do anything to teach any static knowledge anymore. Perhaps we need to teach how to think. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, you know, I find that such an interesting idea, you know, condensation of a different kind, perhaps. What if every kid had psychoanalysis, you know, first period and like sat on the couch with somebody and then went to this like massive media literacy, you know, class and then did PE, you know, after that physical education. And then that was their day. Like that would be kind of an interesting new school. I think so. I very much think so. I think there needs to be a curriculum invented to actually teach media closure as such. Closure. Well, in the sense of the closure of these gaps we've been talking about. Ah, uh, yes, right? yes. Uh-huh. So, okay, take this as an example. I think this is paradigmatic of what's going on, the digitalization of attention on the level of perception itself in the form of the digital image, which is technicalization of the image, right? So the philosopher Wilhelm Flusser, already in the 1970s, was speaking of this and you know he has a he has a very nice quote that goes the all images are subjective abstractions drawn from phenomena while technical images realize objective abstractions this is how he differentiates the mental image from the digital image uh-huh and so you know what he means is that so say if i see a field of flowers my mind selects and segments the sensory continuum according to criteria that are very singular to me, that I've inherited trans-individually, that can accentuate or diminish certain features through their contrast and oppositions. Now, when I look at a digital image, however, of the same feel, you know, what we get instead is a series of objective or objectivized abstractions that are pre-configured through technical procedures and inputs of image creation, right, on the level of pixelation, contrast, whatever. And this abstraction then, an objective abstraction, is submitted as an object to my eyes in the field of vision. So I think this is paradigmatic of what's going on because we see here that what we are having structurally is a certain kind of protocol that's introduced as a filter between what I see and what is given to be seen. 
or what my attention is applied to. So what's important about this is that this is nothing epiphenomenal. Digitalization of this kind materially reprograms and pre-configures my perception of what there is to be seen. So it's a grand seduction, a grand like manipulation in some ways with some capitalist interests. Right, right. And, you know, does this not undergird how all of us have been reconditioned in our perception by the media sphere to think that our attention is one directed to a preformed image that from which we draw out units of information rather than, in fact, how attention actually works, which is that you subjectively decompose a sensory continuum of information in your own particular way that then is turned into an image, right? You turn information into signification instead of trying to draw information from a pre-configured signification or pre-configured meaning, a pre-programmed meaning. So I think the the kind of education you're talking about should be able to actually talk about all the different ways in which the media sphere actually closes upon our very sensory capabilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. In this way. Well, I'll have to pitch that idea to some educators. There's so much more we could say. I want to get to this idea of what the role of the psychoanalyst is in analyzing our tech use or misuse and maybe helping us to, I don't know, take this up. What do you think the psychoanalyst is to do in times like this? I think if we still understand techne as the organization of the sensible, I think psychoanalysis can do very much in terms of the attunement of attention to the different sensibilities that are currently undergoing diminution in the media sphere in the way that I was just describing. Now, I want to get to a point that I, that I find very difficult to articulate, so bear with me. Mm-hmm. With regards to the closure that we were just talking about, I think the point is to open up space. Yeah. And there is, in fact, a space already opened by the very fact of our being asked to assist when, it, when the patient has come to me to say, hey, I have a compulsive use of technology. I don't know why I'm so angry all the time. I don't know why I need to get so anxious when someone insults me on Twitter. They are, in fact, in the field of already in saying that a particular kind of meta-attentional awareness of their mode of attention in the media sphere. And I think this margin of difference, this space that they open up with their question, is where we need to insert ourselves. It's a bit like, I don't want to say educating necessarily, though in the larger literature, this about, you know, we talked about as the education of attention. But I think I would talk about it as the cultivation of the capacity to be able to meta-attend to your own attention. Mm -hmm. And a good way to think about it is that when I read a book or I listen to a lecture, I'm watching a video, my attention is taking as an object someone else's subjective attention, Yes, which I'm deliberately entering into so that I can reimagine things from a different perspective. And that is the point. That's where the creativity comes in, how you reimagine that, exactly. That's right, that's right. And, and, you know, I think to the extent that there is this margin where I, and it's in fact like practically obvious, right, that I have a liberty to determine from moment to moment how I'm going to wander in someone else's 
subjective apprehension of the world, then I can make my own. Mm-hmm. So the immersion in the subjective experience of someone else towards a certain phenomena, the feel of objectification, mm-hmm. can be a way in which if I'm capable of observing and I give myself enough of a space to observe, be the space where a different kind of circuit can be created, mm-hmm. where we have right the integration of the milieu, here's the question of individuation precisely, that also becomes differentiated and not just integrated, which is what we're having more of now. Just the fact of having multiple hours per week in a psychoanalytic treatment is already creating that space over and over again. Exactly. Because we hold that space open and protect the amount of time dedicated to freely associating to the meta-attention and so on. So I think the psychoanalytic endeavor kind of does by design what it is you're talking about. It is a form of interpretive attention Mm -hmm. that grafts itself onto the meta-attentional awareness of our patient's attention that can do wonders because it can function as almost like an autocorrective mechanism (laughs) where when they start to want to rush towards answers or to close up the field, we precisely give them right this free-floating attention. We, in fact, distract ourselves from what they're trying to tell us deliberately in order to dilate and expand, broaden the horizons of what they could be saying and so to get them back into the place where there's a capability to observe, which is really a capacity to inhabit a space, inhabit mm-hmm. a vacuole mm-hmm. in which they can actually construct a singular environment where, you know, it's a question of precisely then inhabiting our digital universe, right? It's a question everybody assumes that we already inhabit the digital sphere. We do not. We do not. Mm-hmm. We are just flattened out. And the question today, much like what the French sociologist Dominique Boulier is doing in this very interesting concept of habitel, which is linked to you know different kinds of notions of enclosures, envelopes, habitats, and also habits, right? Things that can enclose a sphere. And so, you know, another way to put all of this, I think, is that psychoanalysis is one of the few places where we can systematically play out the obstructions mm-hmm. that overpopulate the field in all different ways on the part of our patients so that there is actually some opportunity to inhabit life. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. There is this very nice quote from Nagarjuna that is so good that I've committed it to memory and I use it all the time. And, you know, I want to say this. Nagarjuna says that, no trace of space is there before the absence of obstruction which describes it. Mm. This is what we do in psychoanalysis. This is what I do anyway. (laughs) Yes, yes, great. That's a wonderful way to end what we're talking about. I know you're in the process of writing a book on technology, the drives, and psychic individuation, and you're currently working on an article related to attention and the reality principle in light of our image-saturated digital world. Is there anything you'd like to share about these projects briefly with our listeners? Or is there anything else you'd like to say about what we've been talking about today? I'll just say very quickly, the 
article uh, is a specification on the notions of the drives that I'm trying to develop in the book. And uh, it's basically a, an attempt at a reformulation of the relation between these core concepts in Freudian psychoanalysis, the pleasure and reality principles, in light of the attentional regime of the media sphere today that I've just been talking about briefly, and where we're seeing an overdrive of the pleasure principle on the one hand, and then a mediatized reality on the other, which gives rise to it. And so how do we think about the subject in between pleasure and reality principles? This, this needs to be revamped. So that's what I'm doing in the article. I can't wait to read about it. So we've been speaking with Dr. Jeremy So. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you all for listening to Technology in the Mind. Next month, we'll be speaking with Dr. Kimberlyn Leary, who will be discussing race, bias, belonging, and technology. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.